Well, good morning again. We have gone through 2 Timothy over the past few weeks, and I just want to do a quick review because we are at the end of the book. It's a relatively short book. There are only four chapters in it. It's a relatively short letter that Paul wrote, but it's really packed full of substance. And this is the last letter that Paul writes as he's in prison. This is the last letter that we know of, and the way it's written definitely implies that there were no other letters written, written after this. So Paul is an apostle. He is called by God to plant and establish churches, to equip leaders, and he spends his missionary journeys, three of them, all over uh, lower end of Europe and Asia and the Middle Eastern part of the world, traveling and uh, establishing churches. So over his lifetime, he has seen hundreds of leaders equipped. He has seen multiple churches planted. He has seen the gospel furthered, and he is equipped in some leaders. So as you read his letters, you hear some names being dropped. Some of them are familiar to us, some of them not so familiar. Some names that are being dropped by Paul are people that stood in opposition of what he was trying to accomplish, and some were ones that came alongside him and helped him accomplish what he was accomplishing. Some were those who he felt tried to slow down what he was trying to do, and some came alongside him and didn't necessarily get equipped as as church planters or as church leaders, but they were encouragers, and they were ones who helped him champion this thing, ones who propped him up. He talks about people who financially contributed to his ministry so that he had food to eat uh, and and travel money and expense money to take care of his uh, his journeys. So this last letter that we have from Paul to Timothy is one. Timothy is is a young man who Paul definitely feels a strong affinity for. Uh, Timothy, there's no mention of his father here. We don't know whether Timothy's dad died or or, or left the family, we don't know. But what we do know is that there's a long history of a love for God and a, and a wealth of knowledge and discipleship that's happened in his life through his grandmother and his mother. We know that Timothy comes from a home where the stuff that Paul is emphasizing was emphasized in Timothy's life. So at around the age of potentially 21 years old, he is handed the reins of leading the church in Ephesus, which is one of the more premier churches that Paul planted as far as uh, a cultural center, a place where a lot of influence was coming out of and coming into. And so it was a larger grouping of people, a larger smattering of people who were wanting to be equipped with the gospel. And, and Paul hands the reins after he equips Timothy at a young age, sends him to, uh, to lead this church. So his letters that we have to Timothy have that vibe to it of just, just a rah-rah, get in there, get this thing done, I believe in you, you can do this, but also don't be afraid. Don't, don't let people look down on you because you're younger than them or because maybe you don't have as much experience as them. Don't believe those lies, Timothy. You be faithful to the gospel. And so this last letter, we get a lot of that in a lot of strong fashion. So let's just break down from beginning to today what I think some of the overarching themes are. It starts off by Paul going on what we would say is the defense. He says, Timothy, guard this deposit. This deposit has been put in you of truth, of the gospel, of leadership potential, of, uh, of the ability to stand in front of people and communicate truth. These abilities and these talents, these have been deposited into. Guard them. 
Guard the deposit of truth. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, Timothy, and guard that deposit. It gives the picture of sort of Fort Knox. You know, the Federal Reserve. I'm pretty sure they just don't have a glass door with a big room full of gold bars. And you can just come in and look at it if you want. It's very heavily guarded. And that's how he says to guard this deposit of truth that was put into us. We make sure that we protect it from the attacks of the enemy because the enemy wants to seek and kill and destroy. He wants to rob the joy. He wants to steal things from you. So if you don't guard this deposit of truth by being in tune with the Spirit, by being in God's Word, by practicing these disciplines that we've been talking about in the class, then you're not properly guarding this deposit and you are susceptible to attack. He starts off with that, guard the deposit. He goes in to talk about analogies of soldier, an athlete, a farmer. All of these things have some things in common. It takes diligence to be good at these things. It takes training. It takes preparation. But then it takes action. You can spend your whole life in a weight room, but if you, but if you don't do anything with your muscles, you're just muscular. You can spend your whole, day, whole life training for a marathon, but if you don't actually run the marathon, then what was the training for? You could spend your whole life prepping your, your land to plant your garden or to plant your fields and make sure that you have the most fertile dirt in the land. But if you don't actually put any seed in it and plant and take care of your crops, what good was it? So he's saying you, you, don't, you have to be diligent. So once you do understand the guard that the pause, you have to be diligent. You have to prep yourself. You have to train yourself. You have to continue to equip yourself. This isn't uh, something that you cross off the list and say, yeah, yeah, I read the Bible through one year, so I'm good. I never have to look at it again. Or my pastor preaches from the Bible every week, so I don't have to look at it again. Or I read our daily bread every morning before I leave for work for three minutes, so I don't have to look at the Word anymore. Or I don't need to pray because I pray before meals. Or I don't need to pray because I know people are praying for me. And so what he's really hammering into Timothy is, no, you need to be like a soldier, always ready, always training. There's always training that happens because you never know when the attack's coming. And when the attack does come, you need to be ready for it. Then he goes into, Timothy, don't let other people distract you from this. Your approval for what you're doing in life, your approval comes from God. The same God who spoke the planets into existence, spoke mountains into existence. The same God who created the heavens and the earth, Timothy, he has, he has looked upon you and approved you. He has given his approval to you. So that should trump any other approval that you can get here on earth. Your approval comes from God. Don't get caught up in things that don't have eternal value, Timothy. Don't ruin your testimony over something earthly, something worldly, something that doesn't carry the weight of the cross with it. It's not worth it. Your approval comes from God. Don't get wrapped up in trivial things. Then he goes on to say that the last days, Timothy, buckle up. The last days are going to be hard. You should expect persecution, but... The caveat to that is you should rejoice in it. You should expect to be persecuted. You should expect life to be hard. You should expect hard things to happen to you. And you should rejoice in it because you have hope 
And you have a Savior that has redeemed you from whatever trials you are walking through right now. He uses himself as an example several times. The last thing he said, as we talked about last week before we get into chapter 4, is he basically says we need to use the word as our weapon. He says that scripture is God-breathed and it is useful for teaching and training and equipping. All scripture is God-breathed. God breathed into it. God breathed life into it. He didn't breathe life into it for a time. He breathed life into it for all time. So it's a living and active thing. There's no book that has ever been written that has the power, authority, and life that the Bible has. There's no other literature that's been protected and guarded so well under great attack for centuries. So he says, know the word, use the word, live the word, be the word. All of it, the whole thing. He's going to repeat himself here, so I'm not going to break that down too much right now. But then today, we're at this point where we're going to sort of quiet ourselves. We're going to get in real close, and we're going to listen to this man's final words. Picture yourself in a hospital room. Picture yourself in the, the beepings and the breathing machines and the hardness of this moment. You know that the person lying there has something of value that they're going to say, and it's probably the last thing they're going to say. So we're going to get in real close. We're going to listen intently. And we're going to hear this man's final words because they mean something. Because as he's laying there, as he's sitting there with, with a, a pen in his hands, he's thinking of something to say of value that sums up what he lives for what he wants those who read this letter to live for. And that's the point we're at in this letter. It's joyous and sad at the same time. It carries a heaviness with it and yet a lightness that comes with it because we know where he's at. We know his eternity. But we know we don't have him. We lose him here. Do you get that? We lose Paul here. This is the end of it. It's the last thing we have from him. He dies after this. As I read that, I just felt kind of sad. I felt like I was at a funeral of a dear friend. Because after this, he's gone. His influence is gone with him. Could be. It could be that, that when he dies here, that's it. That's the end of it. It's just another Christian that died in jail. Or it could mean that we listen real close, real intently, and we hear this wisdom, and we do something with it, and we see his trials, and we see his pain, and we see his torment, and we see his joy, and we say, I want that to be my story. I want that to be my ending. I want that to be my life. So let's break this down. Like I said, it has a little bit of a solemnness to it. I was reading this on the plane last night, and I started to tear up, and I made myself go to sleep so I didn't weep on the plane and then have to explain to all the random strangers around me what was wrong with me. Maybe they wouldn't even care. But listen to this. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, if you're reading along in the Bible in front of you, it's on page 689 or somewhere around 689. 
Starting at verse 1 in chapter 4, Paul says this. So picture with me. This is it. Put yourself in that spot. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itchy ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he's very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas also the books, and above all, the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. In my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed, and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prissa and Aquila in the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth and I left Trophimus who was ill at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you all as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe that's uh, just me. But I read that differently. I heard it differently. If I put myself in that position, it, it had more weight to it. It felt more... I felt like I listened to it more intently. So look at some of the things that Paul emphasizes at the end because what this chapter is is sort of a summary of everything he's already said. So the first thing that he wants Timothy to know is to stay true to the word. Stay true to the word, Timothy. Don't veer from it. 
The first words out of his mouth right here in this section of the letters, I charge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead by his appearing and by his kingdom. Pause. Is there any greater authority by which he's about to say what he's about to say? Now, this is crass, and I don't like using this language, but when we want someone to really believe us, we, when we're saying something that we want people to know we are telling truth, we say, I swear to God, right? So I've heard stories like I was in the airport. I saw Bradley Cooper walk past me, throw his coffee away, saying, trash can I used, I swear to God, Right? I, that didn't happen to me. I just made that up. But Why do we say that? We say that expression because it's rooted the whole way back to what Paul is saying right here. There is no greater authority by which I am about to say what I'm about to say than this. There is no greater authority behind backing this charge, Timothy, than what I'm about to say. This isn't just coming from me a guy in prison who loves Jesus. This, what I'm about to tell you, is backed by God himself, by his son, Christ Jesus, who is going to judge the living and the dead by his appearing and by his kingdom. Timothy, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Be ready on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, just as you are on Sunday or more. And then he says, use it for what? To teach, to correct, to confront. All those fun things we like to do with one another, right? Listen to how he breaks this down. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. So yes, preach the word. Know it well enough. That if someone on the street were to ask you, someone outside of a Sunday morning context, a coworker in the break room, uh, a, a family member who doesn't know Jesus, a random stranger in a, on a subway train, whatever your situation is, be ready with this truth. Not just when you're in a situation where you know you are to be ready. I'm on a mission trip, so I'm going to be ready here. I'm going down into the city to evangelize, so I'm going to be ready here. I'm in church, so I'll be ready. No, it says in any situation, in season and out of season, in any situation, be prepared with the word. Be equipped with the word. Know it. Preach it. Be ready in season and out of season for what? He already said to preach it. So we get that. We understand that the word of God needs equipped and taught to groups. That makes sense. That's why we do it. But then he says, be ready in season and out of season for what? Well, that's a weird placement. If you look at the sentence structure, even if you go back to the Greek, the way that's written in such a way that that middle part, be ready in season and out of season, refers to what just came before it and what will come after it. So preach the word. So it, sh it could read like this. Be ready in season and out of season to preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season to reprove, rebuke, and exhort. With the caveat, with patience, with 
complete patience and teaching. We don't just go up to someone, pull out the Bible, say, this is the way you're living, this is why you're wrong. Boom, I'm right, you're wrong. You're a heathen, I'm holy. I've seen it done that way, and it, it really doesn't draw too many people into the love of Jesus when it's done that way. But with complete patience and teaching through relationship, we come alongside someone that we already know, that we already love, that we already trust, that we already have this relationship built with, and we say, listen, you know the truth. You claim the truth in your life. You are making these decisions, and this decision and these series of decisions don't match up with the holiness that you say you live by. I have the full backing of the word of God, the full authority of God, Jesus, who judges the living and the dead by his appearing and by his kingdom to look you in the eye and with complete patience and teaching, open the word with you and patiently walk through life with you and show you what it means to live a holy life. It's a formula for discipleship. It's not a formula for confronting sin. It's a formula for getting in the trenches with one another and knowing one another. The church will not grow if we only know each other on Sundays, period. The church expanded through Asia, through the Middle East, and through Europe. The church exploded under persecution, by the way, through relationships. It happened through relationships. It happened through this person knowing this person, leading this person to Christ, leading this family to Christ. It happened because this person came to know Christ and he led his whole family to Christ. And then they went out and they led people to Christ. Now, I'm not knocking evangelism methods, but there's nowhere in the New Testament where we see a door-to-door -door ministry. There's nowhere in the New Testament where we see someone standing on a, on a box in the middle of New York City telling people that if you choose sin, you're going to go to hell and handing out a little pamphlet. Now, I'm not talking evangelism methods. I think people have come to know Christ through those scenarios. But I think if we're going to pick a method that works best, we should follow the formula Paul followed. And that was investing in people, loving them, knowing them, walking through life with them, and being okay if it takes them a while to understand truth. And loving them enough to walk with them through it. The reason he could look at Timothy and say, you've got this. Go plant that church. Go live Christ out and equip in that church is because he knew him well enough to know he could handle it. It wasn't because he was like, i got to get out of Ephesus or we need a warm body in the pulpit. No, he knew him. He knew him well because he had relationship with him. So if we love one another, if we're in a relationship with one another, we will, in season and out of season, preach the word, hear the word, preach. We will know the word. We will study the word. We will use the word to teach one another, to correct one another, to confront one another. And then he goes on to say, in verse 2, with that complete patience and teaching, he essentially is telling us that God's word is sufficient for this task. The whole word of God. And that's the other caveat. You see, when we sit down and we confront someone or we exhort someone or we, we sit down and we express concern for someone in relationship with them, 
We have to have the backing of the whole word of God, not just a few verses that support our, our opinion. We need to know that the whole word of God supports what we're saying. That in the scope of from the beginning to the end of the word of God, it's this is what it looks like to embody the person of Jesus and what choices you're making when compared to this don't reflect Jesus. And that gives us the authority to call it out. That gives us the authority to say it. That gives us the authority to look someone we love eyeball to eyeball and say, this, this isn't reflecting Jesus. And I love you too much to let you live in this lie. So we patiently walk them through that. We don't give them a business card, say, you're a wretch, you're a sinner, you're making horrible decisions, call me when you want to straighten up. We walk with them through it. Can I be so bold as to say that's exactly why the church stinks at discipleship in America? Because it takes time. And we have to put our own idols in the fire and destroy them to be able to fill our schedules with time for other people. Because we are maxed out. We are too busy. So we don't do discipleship. We don't confront sin. You know what we do? We hire pastors. Hey, pastor, can you talk to so-and-so? They're really struggling with sin, and I don't know how to say it to them. Why don't you say it to me the way you just said it to me? But better, because you know them better than me. Hey, by the way, so-and-so told me. Can you come meet me in my office? So-and-so told me that you've been doing dumb things on the Internet, and I wanted to talk to you about it. That's not the way it's supposed to work. So listen to what Paul's saying in, in the later verses here, because I think it ties in together perfectly to what I just said. In verses 3 and 4, he gives this final warning. So he gives a final charge, use the word, preach the word, patiently endure it with one another. But then he goes into this final warning. He says, there will be an abandonment of truth. It will occur. It will happen. There will be an abandonment of truth. The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. You realize what the word people here refers to? The word people here refers to people who are sitting under the teaching of someone associated with the church. He's talking about you and me. He's talking about people who sit in pews and chairs every Sunday. And maybe they were sitting on stumps and rocks and on the ground back then. Or maybe they were sitting on seats that they built. I don't know. But he's talking to the same audience. He's saying there will be people who sit under the teaching of the gospel and the authority of the gospel and they will abandon it because whenever you start to push in to something that makes them feel uncomfortable, they're going to stop listening to you. They're going to find someone that says something that makes them feel good. Because when I go to church, I want to feel good. I don't want to feel bad. Dude, pastor, you're a downer sometimes. Don't always talk about sin we need to talk about grace. Well, we can't talk about grace if we don't talk about sin. And we can't be the church if we don't know the reality of our wretchedness. So he says people will turn away from sound teaching. 
They will, Timothy. You know what they will do? In their itchiness in their ears, they will leave the sound teaching and they will find someone who scratches that itch. And that's where they'll go. That's where they'll give their money. That's where they'll give their time. Do you know what he's telling Timothy here? There's two things here that I think we need to catch. One is he's talking to the people. There's a warning in here for us, and it's this. Verse 4, it says that they will turn away passive. That is a passive thing. I'm sorry, that's an active thing. They will turn away. They have actively turned away. They will turn away from sound teaching, and then what? They will wander off into myths. That's passive. That's not an active choice. You'll turn away an active decision. That pastor is too hard. That pastor is too abrasive. That pastor is always just, just yelling at us. So you will turn away. And that's active. You're going to make an active decision. I'm done. I'm not listening to that anymore. And you'll go somewhere where the where the teaching comes across a little bit softer to your ears, and then passively, without you even realizing it's happening, you will wander away from sound truth, and you will, you will weave a story for yourself based on a theology that you are writing while you walk. So there's two things here. One, he's telling us that. Don't walk away from sound teaching just because it makes you uncomfortable. Why don't you examine through the word of God whether what's being said to you and why you're uncomfortable is because you have stuff you need to deal with, not because you didn't like what you heard. He's warning us that if you walk away from sound teaching just because it made you uncomfortable and find something that makes you comfortable, you will passively, without even realizing you're doing it, walk into dark territory that you were never meant to be in under grace. That's one thing that he's saying. The other thing he's saying to Timothy is don't let that stop you from preaching truth. You will lose people, Timothy. People will walk away, and that will grieve your spirit. But don't let that stop you. That's not your choice. That's their choice. You patiently walk with people. That's what he said earlier. You patiently teach with complete patience. Wow. Wish you wouldn't have added that one. You can handle patience, but complete patience? That, that puts a different spin on it. You do that. You keep preaching in season and out of season. Because why, Timothy? Because there's going to come a time when people won't want to hear truth. They will get tired of it, and they will walk away. And they'll find somebody else. It's saying something that matches up with what they want to hear. Don't let that stop you. And that's when he gets in to verse 5. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. He says, it's going to happen, Timothy, they're going to go. You're going to have people gathered you're going to be influenced them. Heck, you're probably going to have great discipleship relationship with some of these people. You're going to see them walking towards Jesus. You're going to see some amazing things happen in your life. You're going to brag about them at your elder meetings. And then one day, it's all going to go to pot. And they're going to choose to go somewhere where their ears get tickled. 
And you're going to be tempted in that moment, Timothy, to evaluate your communication. You're going to be tempted to abandon this method. Don't do that. Stay sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist, meaning continue to preach the gospel, continue to teach it, continue to live it, and fulfill your ministry. In other letters, Paul talks about how you will answer to God. Your approval comes from God, not from man, right? So there's this final warning. And then Paul goes into this final testimony. It's a rare occasion where Paul talks about himself. And in context, it's beautiful. Let's listen to it again. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. Can you hear his weariness in there a little bit? He's tired. He's tired. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And then listen to this victorious word. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So again, here's Paul giving us two little messages here. One, I have fought the good fight. Paul is an is a example of a total faithfulness. This guy wasn't perfect, but his life was, was founded and remembered as a total faithfulness to God from the moment of his conversion to the moment of his death. And you know what he's saying here? He's saying, I, I'm, I'm tired, I'm weary. The time of my death is coming. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Therefore, there are treasures laid up in righteousness for me, not just for me, crowns not just for me, but for all the saints who do this. And he says, so I am done. And it was all worth it. It was all worth it. That's what he's saying here. I have fought the good fight. I have run the race. I am about to die. And it was all worth it. Why was it all worth it? Because the last part of verse 8. The righteous judge will award to me on that day. Why was it worth it? Because it wasn't just for me. It was also to all who have loved his appearing all who have loved this person of Jesus that came to redeem us from our mess. Paul had a total faithfulness. And we're not going to go through after this and see all the names. We're not going to read them all again. But what I do think is important for us to look at from verse 9 and through the end of the book is that there are people in our lives that will support this call to ministry. There are people in our lives that will be the pillars. I have a friend, Jack. He lives in Colorado, and I know, I know that if I called him right now, if I called him on my way home and said, I don't know what you got going on, but I'm a mess, and I need you here, he would get on a plane, he would cancel his work, and he would be here tomorrow morning. And he, would, he wouldn't even care about the cost. 
there are people in your life like that. There are people that will support you through thick and thin. These people that are like-minded with you, that understand the gospel with you, and they walk with you through it. Brothers and sisters who will not abandon one another. Paul mentions them in this final word. He mentions them. But you also hear his heartbreak and the people that he thought were his allies that abandoned him. The moments when he felt completely and totally alone. being a little vulnerable here. See, when he says, I fought the good fight, I won the race. When he talks about in uh, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, when he starts laying out some of his trials that he went through, those were lonely times in this man's life when people abandoned him, people that he thought understood the gospel, people that he thought were on the same page with him, people that he, that he was ready to hand the reins to churches over to, and they abandoned him. And worse yet, they abandoned the cross. And that breaks his heart. What he's telling Timothy in this and what he's in turn telling us, that's the same story that you'll be able to tell on your last day. That there were people that stood by you no matter what. They were willing to call you out when you were doing it wrong, and they were willing to support you when you were doing it right. They were beside you, and they were with you. There's a, there's a sense in this writing that Paul is saying that these people he knows are going to try to get to him before he dies. They're going to try to see him before he dies. You, two or three times you hear in this last part, hurry, come to me soon. The sense of urgency. He knows they're out there. He knows they care. And he says to us, he says to Timothy, it's going to be your story too. There will be those who abandon the faith and in turn abandon you. So what's the point? The point is this. Summary statement. Next week we're just going to by the way, look at the life of Paul from where he comes on the scene and we know anything about him to the time of his death. We're just going to do a survey of his life so we have a deeper understanding of this man who wrote this letter. But what's the summary of Paul saying? He's saying that all things, everything about you, when you're under grace, when you understand this, this message, when you have received this amazing gift of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, atoning for our sins, all of humanity's sins, past, present, and future, we receive that gift, then that means that our lives should draw people to Jesus. Our lives, by the way they're lived, by the way we do work, by the way we interact with our neighbors, by the way we spend our money, by the way we save our money, by the way we use our, our stuff, by the way we use our homes, and by the way we interact with the world around us, every fabric of our being should draw people to Jesus. So let me ask you a question. If I came in today and decided to wear this, Wouldn't that be a little distracting to the message? How does that make you feel? You know, this is from a darker day in my past, just so you know. Here's my point. 
this right here, this distracts people from what I said already today. I'm excited for the Eagles. I want to see them win. This is going to be great for our city. I am excited. I want to see them do this thing. This is great. I've been saying those things for weeks, right? But if I come in and I stand wearing this, doesn't that negate everything that I've already said? Doesn't that make you question my loyalty? Doesn't that make you want to fire me immediately? This is the cloak of the enemy, right? But this is how we live our lives. We live our lives in such a way that we say one thing when we're in the presence of people that are like us. We say something else when in the presence of people who aren't like us. It's easy to be an Eagles fan in Eagle country. It's harder to look my brother-in-law, eyeball to eyeball, who's a diehard Steelers fan, and listen to him berate me as to why I shouldn't like the Eagles. Right? But that's what we do. We come into church. We go to Bible studies. We do our thing. We say with our mouths something that we live by, a code that we live by, things that are vitally important to our existence. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And we walk out the door and we put the opposing team's jersey on and we let the world around us see the enemy on ourselves. We let the world look at us and see something that doesn't represent who we say we represent. And you know what Paul has to say about people like that? Let's just say it's not very nice. It's not very kind. Earlier in the book, you remember, he says that there are those who have a form of godliness, but deny the spirit's power. And we talked about that. We talked about how if we live that way, we are saying in the presence of people who think and talk like us in this moment right here in the friendly confines of the church, we can be sold out for Jesus, 100% committed, bought into this thing. I love Jesus. That is a form of godliness. But when we walk out the doors and deny the Spirit's power by not speaking up when we have the opportunity to, not making hard decisions in our relationships, not being vigilant in what we do, what we say, where we go, and who we're with, then we're denying the Spirit's power. So we say one thing, we speak out of both sides of our mouths. Yeah, yeah, I love Jesus. Of course I do. I'm in church. Mm, it's a lot easier to just do this thing. So I think if I were to come in today to preach the sermon wearing that jersey, I think all I would have done is distract you from what I was trying to say. I think I would have done study and laid the groundwork, but then through my actions, through my physical decisions, I would have distracted from you being able to hear truth because of my actions, because of my decisions. Because the way I was presenting myself to you, I 
build a wall that you wouldn't let truth penetrate. And that would have been my fault. I tried to be neutral in my dress today. So you get it? You get what Paul's trying to say here? Well, let me rephrase that. Do you get what Paul is saying here? Do you get why it's so vitally necessary to us? Because I don't know for sure. I can't say with complete confidence that when Paul wrote this, he was describing America in 2018. But it sure does fit. So whether he meant it that way or not, it could easily be interpreted into our current situation. Will we be those who have tickling ears who go somewhere to get that scratch itched? Or will we endure, hear truth, live truth, be 100% committed to truth, and make the hard decisions? Because at the end of the day, we want to stand before our creator and say, I ran the race. I have fought the good fight. I will receive the crown of glory that was meant for me and all the people who live a faithful life for Jesus. Will that be you? Will that be me? Don't allow Paul's message to be wasted on you. God, thank you for the power of your word, the power of your testimony, the power of testimonies of, of guys like Paul in the past and so many others that have come after him, that came before him. Thank you for the, the reality of the truth that you did die on the cross to atone for all sin, past, present, and future. The reality that we have that hope as an anchor for our souls. The reality that if you are for us, then who could stand against us? The reality that we are more than conquerors through Christ. The reality that your word is powerful. The reality that for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I live on this earth, we can live out this calling and this truth. And we will die to ourselves and we will die on this earth. But we will gain the whole, the whole prize and satisfaction of being in your presence for all eternity. But to live is Christ. To die is gain. 